Hi, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays. Each week we will interview a history professor with the theme of power and people. Let's get started. And welcome to It's All History to Me. I'm Victoria here with Sophia, and our special guest this morning is Lieutenant Colonel Retired Elvis Davis. Charles Elvis Davis III is an instructor within the Department of Political Science. He completed his BA in Economics and Political Science from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, his Master's in Public Administration from the University of Montana. He received an MOAS in International Security Studies from the Air Force Institute of Technology. He earned a Master's in Comparative Politics from the University of New Mexico and is currently in the dissertation phase of pursuing his doctorate in public policy from Auburn University. Elvis, as he encourages his students to call him, has completed research projects that emphasize on the impact of American public policy, leadership, and international politics. Currently, Elvis teaches classes on topics ranging from American government to public administration. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Elvis. Good morning. It's a great thrill to be here and an honor. Huh. Yay. Well, to start things off, our first question for you is, what got you interested in the field of political science and international relations? Well, I, I always had a had an interest in how large organizations worked and particularly how their leaders made decisions and, and saw to the mission, saw the accomplishment. The business part didn't really spark me much. I was more interested in how the organization worked and how the, how the, the leaders they had the design and the reach of these complex organizations and, and these diverse units coming together to ensure success. Uh, as a sophomore at UAB, I was, I was doing okay, but I wasn't really happy with my academic direction. I, I had been involved in natural sciences, and I was doing okay, but it, it wasn't really exciting me that much. So I, I had shifted over to the English department looking for uh, creative writing, maybe journalism, some different things like that. That was going kind of slow, so I was getting a little antsy. But I was I was talking with my uh, with my uh, my dear father who was a senior manager with the Social Security Administration at the mm. time. He was an intelligence technician with the uh, with the Air National Guard. So he suggested that I just step back and he said take a couple of courses that that you just learn some general knowledge. So I take a government course. I thought, well, okay, I'll do that. So I, I uh, that we were on a quarter system back then. Mm. So that winter quarter. Yeah. I, uh, I signed up for uh, Intro to American Government, and also at his behest, I enrolled in basic economics, just, just to see what it was about. And I was kind of intrigued in how those two seemed to work together at the international level. Just kind of sparked my interest. Yeah, yeah, and the rest is history. Uh, <laughs> very cool. All right, so as a history-centered show, you are the first guest we've had on from outside the history department. However, we wanted to show our listeners just how applicable the study of history can be for, be even outside the traditional understanding of what the study of the past is. How would you say the field of history impacts your work, directly or indirectly? Well, it most certainly uh, uh, is directly impacting, but uh, as, as social scientists, we're, we're always intrigued with how scenarios come about and how things happened or maybe how things didn't happen the way that, that we thought they should. 
But in, in both politics and economics, we depend really heavily on our brethren and sister in, in, in history scholars for an accurate contextual landscape accounting for players and environments and, and catalysts. So our science as a social science requires, uh, or it, it, uh, it relies heavily on constructed inferences. We don't deal with a lot of laws, you know, yielding absolute certainty. Uh, our blue goop and red goop don't always <laughs> produce purple goop. Right. <laughs> and it's our job to figure out why. But we trust very, very uh, implicitly, we, we trust uh, accurate recorded history with precise details of context and environment to enhance the credibility of our model. So when we do hypothesis testing, there's a, a certain foundation there. We can't make it up, and we don't have time to go learn about the nuance. Uh, yeah, that totally makes sense. So they're all so interwoven together and one helps the other. So that's really cool. Yeah. Okay. So you have quite the extensive educational credentials, Elvis. What has motivated <laughs> you to continue going back to school as you've kept earning degrees? I just want to be a smart guy. Yeah. One day uh, I want to be a smart guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was very fortunate to receive a couple of academic fellowships while I was in the Air Force. Just kind of Right place at the right time, taking advantage of things. Yeah. One was as a student with the Air Command and Staff College down at Maxwell, down mm -hmm. in Montgomery. Uh, that's where I, I received a master's degree there in, in international security studies. It was pretty cool. Later, I got a chance to go back down there and be on faculty. So when I was on faculty there, I received another opportunity for further graduate uh, fellowship. And, and it just sort of keeps showing up. I, I once took an assignment as a... Uh, I once took an operational assignment that offered a free graduate study at a local university oh. kind of as an incentive to do the assignment. Yeah. That, that's how I ended up in Montana after Operation Desert Storm. Mm. <laughs> so that's how I ended up with a degree from the University of Montana. I just They just said, well, if you'll go do this, we'll give you an opportunity. And I raised my hand. I said, I, I, will, I will go. So I'm pretty fortunate. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Very cool. What is your favorite part of being in the field of political science? Well, I've always loved studying the leadership and interaction of human beings involved, particularly in complex organizations and, and really in governing societies and, and, and how, these, how these societies work. <clears throat> Political science doesn't feature uh, many high-tech machines or sophisticated contraptions making things work, making things happen, you know, performing government actions. It's people. Every single time, it's people acting and leading sometimes more awesomely than others. <laughs> so I enjoy the human element of, of, of it as a social science, and I really enjoy the science part of it as well. Uh, yeah, the best of both worlds. <laughs> okay, uh, so thinking more broadly here, so our theme for this semester's podcasts are power and people. So we always like to ask our guests what they feel like power relates to in their field. So for this question, how does history shape government and how do you feel like it relates to power? Well, that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> a big that, question for That's a great question. Yeah, and, and, and I and I love that. I mean, that's that is uh, I I think in really the the way we look at international relations mm -hmm pretty much kind of where, where I'm grounded. International relations are a free-for-all environment. We, we accept it as organized anarchy. Mm. You know, there's no overriding uh, organization. The UN provides a great function and does certain things. In our environment or in, in our discipline, realists believe in a zero-sum game, international relations, 
powerful nations have power often at the expense of all other nations. Mm -hmm. At the other end, social constructivists believe that the environment is one of cooperating institutions and everybody's working together for the greater good, and that's all awesome. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is somewhere in between, and that's, right. that's kind of where, where we get to the middle. So when I look at and I think about power and American power, there's a big part of our history where we trace our history to back to the pilgrims coming over on the Mayflower and all, <clears throat> and they proclaimed their beloved Massachusetts Bay Colony <clears throat> to be the shining city on the hill that the rest of the world could look to and, and see and wish to emulate. And that idea kind of carries through the centuries. It carries into the modern era with Mearsheimer's theory of, of great power politics and, and the idea of hegemony. And then even in the modern times with Madeleine Albright's America's as the indispensable nation and Obama's America must lead. We just always buy into that. That's right, our yeah. role. That's our power in the world. So from our humble beginnings with Massachusetts Bay Colony comes this, this concept or this idea that America is an exceptional nation. We have this American exceptionalism. We're, we're important on the world stage and, and important in the world. And that concept is heavily debated through our whole history, and it most certainly is heavily debated today in, in all of our disciplines. International relations folks really debate that hard. But I say by, by understanding with confidence our historical roles and our historical behaviors, and sometimes it's how we've reacted to different things, we, we understand how to operate today as the world's lone superpower. We wield that power, and because we're exceptional, we wield it better than anyone else ever has in history. Yeah. <laughs> That's what some of us love to think in. <laughs> yeah, well, very interesting, very interesting. So they're very tightly wound together. Yeah. yeah. Nice. All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break, but we'll see you right after the ad break. We're back, everyone. Good morning. Uh, this WEGL 91.1 FM. I'm Victoria here with Sophia and our special guest, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Elvis Davis. Yes. He, this morning, we're going to be talking about his experience in the U.S. Air Force. He is a proud space operations professional, now retired. His background in international relations led him to serve in a war zone, U.S. Embassy, and then back to the classroom where he has taught government for several years at both the graduate and undergraduate levels. Very cool. So, what motivated you to serve your country through the U.S. Air Force, Elvis? <laughs> you know, if we go back to the people I graduated high school with, I think very few people would be surprised that I ended up being a college professor. Oh. <laughs> Every single one of them are still surprised I joined the military. Ah, interesting. <laughs> I just spent my whole life there. But the, the military, the Air Force, in my case, with the military gave me the opportunity to be a part of something much bigger than I am that large, complex organization that had interested me. Yeah. And, and I just got an opportunity to, to, to be a part of, of seeing those things work and, and learned a lot. So I, uh, I, I was fascinated by it. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any anecdotes from your time in the Air Force that you would like to share with our listeners? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how much time do you got? <laughs> you know, we, we all do, and it, it's great fun, and, and it, it, it's awesome. But I, I, I guess I'll, I'll go back to uh, one of the most recent ones. It really was at the end of my career, and I, I served until they uh, thanked me for my service and told me to go find a real job. <laughs> it was like 30, 30 years total, you know. But at the end of my career, I was, uh, I was in uh, – I, I served – 
I, I'm very fortunate to go many places with many great teams and do some great things, if I do say so my own self. But yeah. <laughs> one, of the, one of the fun things that, that happened to me was that towards the end of my career, I served two tours back-to-back in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Both times, or both tours, I reported to the same joint headquarters in downtown Baghdad, which was run by the U.S. Army and the Brits. The Brits had a big part of it. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. It was known as Multinational Security Transition Command Iraq. We called it Men Sticky. We had a companion <laughs> organization over in Afghanistan that they called C-Sticka. Never mind what that stands for. <laughs> but I, I had completely separate functions with completely separate missions or operations on each tour, and the two came together in a really unusual fashion at, at the end of my second one. So I, I will share that with you. Uh, my first tour, I, I competed really hard to... to uh, to uh, be assigned to a military augment billet with the embassy mm-hmm. in, in Baghdad. My, my original assignment was to Afghanistan, but I got mm-hmm. switched to Baghdad, which was fine. I, I didn't mind. But I, I got a staff billet with the U.S. Embassy, working with the Iraqi government officials and was training and advising their government staff agencies, pretty much on the diplomatic and the bureaucratic ways of the West. We were, we were trying to teach them how to operate in a world a little bigger than the one that, that they were coming from. Mm. So although I was always armed, I, I was one of the few authorized to carry weapons on the embassy grounds. I wore a civilian coat, I wore a civilian suit all the time. And most people, although Ambassador Ford and some of his staffers knew I was a military guy, they had hired me for the job. They, yeah. they knew the job. But most everybody assumed that I was just another State Department cat. Everybody was from somewhere else, you know, serving in this in this war zone. So really, I was never asked. Nobody nobody asked you know, where I had come from, and I never told anybody. You know, yeah. I just, we just we just kind of did our things. But a couple of times, folks would come into my office, and they would see me without my suit jacket on, and they would see that I was armed and, and that I was, was carrying weapons and ammunition, and they were <laughs> they were pretty alarmed by that. That's not something you saw every day on the yeah. embassy for sure. And I would generally explain it away, and I think they usually assumed that I was some kind of CIA guy oh, or you know, something like that, and they'd, they'd leave me alone. So that was pretty cool. On my second tour, it was about eight weeks, a couple of months separated my, my two tours, I, I served on the second tour as a coalition liaison and U.S. advisor to the Iraqi Minister of Defense, Abdul Al-Qadr. It, it, was, it was still working kind of with the embassy people. I was just now doing it from the Iraqi ministry, I mean, defense ministry side of things. So again, I, I grew my hair and mustache a little longer and, and wore civilian suits everywhere again. You know, we, we got, I worked with a lot of, lot of military guys, a lot of our army guys, but they all assumed that I was some kind of State Department diplomat or something, <laughs> you know. And I, I spent a lot of time with the multinational force Iraq units, which later was U.S. forces, but again, the question never really came up who I was or what I was doing, so I, you know, I was never suspected. <laughs> but when my second tour was coming to an end, I'd been there about 13 months in total, I, w- I was sending everything, I was shipping everything home, and I was sending it all home through on State Department money through State Department over at the embassy, so no one was really seeing me. Nothing was going through military channels. So towards the, the last week or so I was there, I sent all my civilian suits home and my hats and everything, and... And I transitioned to wearing my USAF combat uniforms everywhere. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what we did. So I, 
I went on one of my last days there. I went on my official exit interview to see Ambassador Ford, and I was armed as usual and in uniform, you know. And my hair was much shorter, and I looked different than I had. It had been several months since I had worked over there, but I was in the I was in the chow hall one day. I was having lunch, and and some of the staffers I had worked with a few months before kind of recognized me, and they came walking over, and they weren't sure at all what was going on. They weren't <laughs> sure it was me till they got close. And then they saw me, and they were really surprised to see me in uniform, and they really didn't like to see me with a weapon there on the embassy grounds. Huh. And I understand that. that. That's okay. I really get that, especially having worked there. But some of them were fairly indignant. that They felt like I had lied to them, and I, I had <laughs> fooled them. You know, I had been a military spy in their midst all that time. <laughs> and I was saying, oh, my goodness, girl, calm down, calm down. And I got to bring your lunch over here. And, I was able to convince them that I had not intentionally deceived them, and I, you know, eventually trust was regained, and perhaps some respect was regained. <laughs> I, I don't know. State Department cats don't get on well with military guys, mm. and very much vice versa. I, I get it. Interesting, especially, especially in a combat zone. I mean, later that evening, <clears throat> we were—I was doing one of my last uh, events with the minister at his private residence in downtown Baghdad. And the ambassador was there, and a bunch of different people were there. It was kind of a, a soiree. It was pretty cool. But I didn't have any civilian clothes, you know, where I was wearing my uniform again. <laughs> we're always armed over there, you know. But anyway, so some of the U.S. forces Iraq guys I had been working with saw me there, and they had never seen me in uniform. Oh, they were indignant. <laughs> they, oh, my goodness. They were, you know, not only was I in uniform, I was an airman. And, oh, that's almost as bad as being the enemy, you know. Oh, that's funny. certainly worse than being a State Department guy, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, much emotion ensued there as well. I mean, they, they kind of, my military compatriots, they proved a lot tougher to, to calm than the diplomatic oh, guys yeah. did. Oh, they were really not happy. They felt like I, you know, I was with the State Department and I had, had fooled them and, <laughs> and it had, you know, had kind of lied to them. So, oh, my goodness. In the combat zone, military people, we don't trust anybody. And we, we don't like non-military people. We really don't like State Department people. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's, it's apples and oranges, and it's okay. It's not personal. But they, they were really, well, the, the minister and the ambassador was explaining to them what was going on, and they got the biggest hoot out of it. They just <laughs> laughed and laughed. It was just one of the funniest things they had ever seen. Of course, all at my expense. You know, I, I'm suffering here. I, <laughs> yeah. You know, I was, it was a harrowing time for me. I mean, I'm, I'm losing friends rapidly in a Aww. place where having friends is often what keeps you alive. You yeah. Know? Keeps you around to fight for another day. Mm. So I was able to get some of my State Department buds and some of my military buds together and say, Remember when we taught this and have thought about this? Here's why I'm representing the military. Remember when we did it? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it was at the end of my, my whole time, I've got these two groups that were very friends of mine, and they're both disowning me. Oh. And they're trying to out-hate each other over how angry they are because they felt like I had had fooled both of them. Uh-huh. But, but anyway, it, it turned out fine. It was good. It was okay. And we all high-fived and oh, good, good. when it was said. But oh, <laughs> that's crazy a fun time. story. Yeah, yeah. Super interesting. Huh. <laughs> very cool. Okay, so how has your service in the military informed the work and research that you have done since retirement? Well, that's a great question. Uh, we're all products of where we've been, of course, and what we've done, and, and, and that's good. And We bring experiences in, but as, as a military guy and having served for a long time in lots of different environments, I was fortunate to serve in big headquarters. I've served, you know, been in the Pentagon a lot and stuff like that. I, I do have a certain understanding of, of protocols, 
I have an understanding of layers of information and levels of information. There are certain people that understand certain things in different ways solely because of where they are. Mm. So I, I understand that kind of stuff. And I, I've noticed that as I read journal, journal articles and I study and I prepare writing journal articles, I, I, can, I do see a little deeper into, into those things. I see a little deeper into scholarly interviews. And, and I, I look mm. at, at kind of how people do, especially those that have international flavor. Or I, I really am drawn to the State Department oh, stuff. Yeah. So it, it has made a difference. It's made me more comfortable. I was, not, I was anxious to move into the academic environment. I really was. Mm. Most of us military guys are anxious to move into any non-military environment. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it has been awesome. But I think that my background is unique and different enough <clears throat> that it gave me a different perspective on, on how this operates. Yeah, totally. Um, how, uh, what is mo- one of the most important lessons your time in the Air Force has taught you? Oh, wowie zowie. <laughs> you know, there's the $64,000 question. You always think, when you retire, no one prepares you to retire. Yeah. You prepare yourself to retire, mm-hmm. and, and your retirement's really good based on your preparations for your own retirement. So you think about these things. You know, when I'm no longer in the Air Force, what is this going to take from me? Moving into a totally different environment, like a lot of my peers, they retire, and they go back to, you retire around major military installations, and a lot of guys do, and gals do things that they did in the military. It pays good, especially mm-hmm. for a contractor. Coming into the academic world is a little different, but but I will say that probably the biggest thing I took from, from the Air Force goes back to the very beginning, goes back to what I, my original interest in large, complex organizations doing large, complex missions and how the leadership makes all that happen and the, the resources it takes to do that. And, and what I learned is really those large organizations are very similar in many ways and they share a lot of traits regardless of where they are or what they do. Some of them are corporations doing their thing. They're, they're making their product and selling it. Others are educational institutions like, like you know, we are here at Auburn. So I, I, I think that, that that's helped a lot to get me started. But surprisingly, many of their leaders are similar. Many of the people, you're still making big decisions, and they're complex decisions. And even though you're doing them in different ways, it's a lot of the same kind of things that go in there. So with that understanding and background, <clears throat> I think I, I'm i not overly awed or, or, or uh, intimidated by large organizational structures or complex organizational structures. I, I can find who's in charge, or I can find who's responsible, and I can go to them I'm not easily intimidated by large amounts of money or big fancy equipment. You know, and I really find that, that being, having been in the military, we don't take a lot, we don't take anything personal in the military. Mm-hmm. Everybody's operating to do as best we can. So tense environments where decisions are being made, I, I'm comfortable in. Mm-hmm. And I know I see people who are not comfortable in those environments, and, it, and it's hard. And I feel like because I am comfortable, I'm able to go to them sometimes and pat them on the back and say, you gave a good viewpoint there. It was not accepted. That's okay. Don't lose it. <laughs> That's who you are. So I, I think the whole idea of being a part of these big organization with these big different missions helped a lot when I came to university where we're not that different from being a big military organization. Not as different as some people might think. Huh. That's so interesting. Very <laughs> cool. A neat perspective to get to bring for sure. Okay. So um, let's see. How does our government's history shape the way we understand the world today, would you say? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> a bigger picture question now. That, that, that is, you know, I, 
I tell on the, on the one hand, I would say, well, it, it can't help but uh, operating in. I'm fascinated by different cultures and mm-hmm. different uh, different histories, different customs, and all that. <clears throat> One of the things we really learn in in the United States military, in the Cold War military, the world was a lot different. You really had to pay attention to who was the bad guys. Everybody knew who the bad guys were. Everybody knew who we were bad guys too, so on and so forth. But <clears throat> I think now in the post Cold War. Uh, comparing our historical journey with the journeys of other nations and why other cultures do things differently than we do, and it's just different. Sometimes it's much better. Mm, yeah. Every now and then, we're pretty sure we do things better, and that's okay <laughs> because because <clears throat> we all did. I had a great time with my British compatriots in in Iraq and Baghdad because they the Brits know they do everything right. They just do. <laughs> they do everything perfect. But I think. <clears throat> Working around other nations and, and in the international environment helps us understand a lot about where we came from and what we need to do to be better, what we can perhaps expect in that world over the, over the coming years, and how we can, uh, we, can do our, we can improve in the act. We can improve as we're, as we're operating, and that's a, that's a pretty cool deal. Yeah. It takes a lot of knowledge. You know the old saying, you know, those who don't understand their history are doomed to repeat it. Right. You know, okay, yeah. well... That's true. That's true. That's true. Over and over and over. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Uh, one more question before our next ad break, and that is, what is your best advice you can give to any of our listeners that have any connection to the military? Wow. <clears throat> I, I, do, I do try to talk to military people, especially those who are retiring or transitioning into retirement, but I would say for all that I've already said about how similar the military yeah, and other yeah. organizations are, <laughs> there's really not that much that directly applies. There's right. not a whole lot. <clears throat> we struggle with that in the military mm. when it comes to writing resumes, for instance. How do I, how do I take my military experience and, and impress some corporate mm, person yeah, with definitely. it? You know? that, that's a big challenge. So what I, I often tell them, I said, for, for me, it, in my experience, it, it's reminiscent of the difference in working with the embassy staff and working with this combat headquarters. We're all doing the same job. We're just doing different pieces of it. But when it comes down to it, we are from Venus, <laughs> and everybody else is from Mars yeah, or aw. Saturn. <clears throat> they are indeed different, and sometimes they're from Jupiter. I don't really understand that. In the military, we understand if you're an Air Force cat, we get it. Mm-hmm. If you're a Marine, oh, yeah, we get it. <laughs> Navy folks, okay, sometimes we don't always get it. But in the <laughs> civilian world, there's a whole, whole lot more people that we don't get. Right. So I tell my military guys, the structure is not out here. Mm. No one's going to wake you up. No one's going to really tell you you've done good. We do that a lot in the military. We pat ourselves on the back a lot. Aww. Everybody <laughs> out here kicks you in the backside a lot. <laughs> you're not doing good enough or what have you. But I tell them, patience is your number one virtue. Mm. Attention to detail is as important. Yeah. Oh, that's good yeah. advice. That's good advice. We're going to do a two-minute ad break, but we'll see you right after. All right. We're back. Good morning, everyone. It's all history to me here at WEGL 91.1. I'm Victoria, here with Sophia and our special guest, retired Lieutenant Colonel Elvis Davis. So, throughout his education, retired Lieutenant Colonel Davis has completed research projects that emphasize the impact of American public policy, leadership, and international politics. So... How does this history impact the design of public policy, would you say, Elvis? Well, on the one hand, I would say it has, has everything to do with, with our public policy. We have to, we have to reach in and, and reach into our experiences and see where we've been and, and what we've done. Hmm. Uh, 
you know, I never, I did not aspire to be, I, as I've gone along my, my scholarly journey, I've kind of morphed into a policy wonk. That's yeah. what I've become. I, it, it's not what I aspired to be. I was <laughs> sort of looking at doing other things, but, but I enjoy it. I'm comfortable with the notion, if maybe if, if, if not entirely flattered by the moniker, but, but that's Aww. okay. But, <laughs> but I do study, and my dissertation research is on how we write poet policy and mm. why we write it the way we write it. Interesting. And kind of the journey of, of policy. So I, I very much enjoyed studying the influences and the catalysts that we take and where it all comes from. And it does all come from everybody brings their world experience to the table. And sometimes it, it counts, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people are pushing it hard and we, we have to accept it or don't. So it's, it's, part of the, it's part of the complex challenge of formulating good public policy. Mm. We don't often, in fact, I would say we never have the opportunity of putting policy out there and saying, oh, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. Right. You know, we yeah. put policy out there and we pay a high price for bad policy. For sure. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> Could you elaborate a little more on your former and current topics of research? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, moving along my scholarly journey, kind of moving into the policy realm, uh, I very much enjoyed uh, the, the study of, of different types of policy. Mm. In the last couple of years, I really enjoyed studying, or the past three years, I guess, the, uh, the development of commercial, the commercialization of marijuana and commercial oh. marijuana management. I mean, mm. I, you know, I came of age in the 70s, okay? <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm a born and raised deadhead. I, I, love, I love the 70s. I graduated high school in the 70s. I got married in the 70s. I, I, I grew up in the 70s. I understand some things, or I've at least heard about them. How about that? Hmm. <laughs> but I, I really enjoyed looking, especially as the first four or five states began to pass commercialization of marijuana laws, it's fascinating on many levels. Marijuana is still a controlled substance at the federal level. That's a major deal. We're looking at it very carefully, but it, it's a major deal. But I really enjoyed the way that the different states did things differently. Right. I, mean, I, I, I lived in California. I understand. Okay. I don't understand California, but I lived in California. <laughs> I, get, I get a clue about California. But California did their commercialized uh, marijuana based on the post-prohibition thing. Mm -hmm. They went back and, and pulled a lot out of the archives, and it worked well for them. Colorado decided that they were going to use all of the proceeds from their marijuana taxing uh, for education and education only. And mm. It's been really interesting to, to see everybody doing things in, in, in different ways. My current research has shifted a little more towards the federalism lines and a little bit towards kind of where I started my, my graduate work was in immigration, immigration mm. policy. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm really enjoying, uh, I'm evaluating how very similar paths have been taken by very dissimilar states. Hmm. You know, how Arizona and Alabama handle immigration, very different, but we have very similar similar ways to look at it. So that's, that's what I'm doing lately. That's a, my most... Uh, my most recent, uh, sort of my published research was yeah. uh, was on commercialization of marijuana, which is pretty cool. Uh -huh. I hope my next published uh, research is going to be along these lines. So. Yeah, oh, very cool, very cool. And, yeah, definitely a neat historic moment with that, like, tension between the national and state level uh, policies. So that's cool. Okay, so what is the most interesting finding your research has taught you about the American condition, another bigger uh, scale question. Wow, that uh, <laughs> you know, and, and when we talk about the American condition, we we kind of sort of think about it, or I kind of sort of go back and, and think about uh, think about American exceptionalism, you yeah, know, and, and why we are how we are, and why we do things the way we do them. I 
I find, especially as a social scientist, mm-hmm. there are many paths to social prescription. In the natural sciences, sometimes you're fairly combined. Mm-hmm. You got your red goop, and you got your blue goop, and you pour it in a beaker, and it's purple goop. Right. Now you got to figure <laughs> out what to do with the purple goop. Uh huh. Well, I made that joke before about in social science, sometimes it's not either as purple as we think it ought right, to be. Right. Every now and then it shows up green, and you're mm-hmm. like, "There's no way that can be green." Yeah. But but it is. <laughs> but. But there, there are certain rules and certain things that we do try to follow in social science. And a lot of it has to do with just learning from where you've been, the history aspect mm-hmm. of things. So I, you know, I go back to the, the idea of, of commercial marijuana, you know, and how some states like California really didn't waste any time of just pulling the old prohibition thing. They just said they plugged in. They went back to all of that liquor stuff and just substitute the word marijuana for mm. it and pow they started going with it and it gave them a great path to get started they run into some challenges since and, mm. and that's okay but other states didn't have anything to do with prohibition mm. so they did start from scratch colorado was not a big prohibition right. state for instance you know yeah. they they kind of started and that's a very unique thing and the, the american condition has always been we we are innovative we're not afraid to fail we don't fail often but we're not afraid to do things that don't work and then say, well, let's try it a different way. <laughs> you know, the old saying about Thomas Edison was he, he invented a thousand light bulbs. Only, you know, 999 didn't work. Right. <laughs> and the saying was each, every time one didn't work, he would go, well, not like that. And he would try something else. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's what I think is the American condition is we will do that. Other older nations typically will say, it always worked like this before, and they'll keep doing that. Mm-hmm. And they have their own reasons for doing that, too. But right. That's what I love about the American condition. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very cool. Very cool. A good, good thing to grasp from all the research at a bigger level. How do you hope your research will be read and understood by its audience? Well, I I hope they love it. <laughs> well, I hope I, I hope it's seen as as innovative and imaginative in its approach, and and you know that it answers the research question in a way that they can understand and they find logical. <clears throat> but I always hope that they find some new way, some improved way, so not some forced or contrived logic. You know, a, a, a lot of it's difficult enough reading research and, and understanding it, but a lot of times you, you kind of get that that uh, 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 that that what do they call it that uh, a Deus Ex Machina? You kind of like you're going along, you're going along, and all of a sudden, poof! Okay, there's the result. You're like, oh, oh wait a minute, where did that come from? Yeah, you got green goop here. I want to <laughs> see what that's all about. But it, I, I want to see that my I, I hope the folks when they see it, they they follow my research, they see the conclusions. They go back and say, how exactly did you get there? And they look at, at the research itself. That's what I secretly want them to do. Yeah. I don't want anybody to go like, oh, okay, I get it. Now I understand the green goop. Mm. I want them to say, like, why did that? Why is that green goop again? Or what did this guy find? What did oh, this yeah. person see? So I hope that they to answer the question. I hope they take the research part of it seriously and pay attention to that. And I hope they find it innovative and, uh, <laughs> and yeah. useful. Yeah, yeah. That totally makes sense and definitely a great point that's important to remember, too, when doing research. So let's see. Um, what impact do you hope your research will have? I, I honestly hope my research finds good practical implications. I, I hope people find it useful. I would love to be smart enough to do research that makes people think. You know, <laughs> Einstein would do stuff, and he would just throw it out there and go, like, hey, there it is. Y'all do something with it. And right. 
you know, it took a long time for me to be smart enough to do something with it. I'm not that smart. I hope that, that and I do this research and people can look at it and go, All right, not only do I see how the green goop happened, here's what we can do with it. Mm. Or maybe they'll take that. I do really like to. One of the things I enjoyed when I was first learning to be a scholar was <laughs> I enjoyed people who wrote things at the end of their, they, they said, you know, I had seen this during my research, but I just didn't have time to do it. Oh, yeah. You go, maybe you could look at, we, we call it the areas for further research part, mm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I, I enjoyed it, and I hope to do some of that for, I hope some folks to say, I, I'm going to take this to a further logical implication or, or a further level of, of something, so I, I hope that my research, I guess what I'm saying is I hope it spurs other research, how about that? Yeah, definitely. Somebody who's smart enough to just put it out there and say, there, take that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's cool, and definitely connects to what we've been talking about with some of our other guests on the show with how they're hoping that their history or research will be able to be a stepping stone for the next group of people. So Yeah, that's a yeah. good way to put that. I, yeah. I agree with that. Perhaps we all secretly hope that. I right. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're going to take a two-minute ad break, but we'll see you right after. All right. Welcome back, everybody. If you're just joining us, it's all history to me here on Weagle 91.1. We have our special guest, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Elvis Davis here with us from the Political Science Department. And we are now on to our Q&A trivia questions and final wrap up portion (laughs) of the show. All right. So here comes our trivia. So our first question for you is how many active Air Force bases were there in the United States? (laughs) Holy moly! I think I'm supposed to be some kind of Air Force expert. Oh, I don't. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you have a guess. I always say my, my sons would tell you that I am the king of useless information. Ah, I was a pretty fair trivial pursuit guy when I was younger. Oh, uh, wow! Active Air Force bases in the United States. You know, I grew up in the Cold War, so it's kind of like I. I think I had an idea back then. We mm. had like a, a million or so back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would say uh, I know. Every state does not have an active duty installation, mm-hmm. and some several states have a couple of three, and some states have a bunch. Mm-hmm. I, I would take a stab, and I would bet that today, after the Cold War and all the closures and stuff, I bet we still have, I, I'm going to expect, I'll say about 75 is in the ballpark. Ooh, okay, yeah, yeah. I'd say that's a good ballpark answer. So the answer that I was able to find is that there are 59 active Air Force 59, bases in the okay. U.S. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, close in, the, close in that ballpark. We're still closing them. We're, we've, there's still more that we need to close. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's not bad. That's yeah, not bad. no, not bad at all. A little less than the million we had back in the Cold War. Days. Yeah, yeah, just a little less. <laughs> Our next question is, what state has the most military bases, including all branches? Oh, my God, including all branches. Wow, most bases. I think back in the Cold War, we had 10 million of those. <laughs> uh, wow, I, uh, oh, my goodness, that's, that's pretty good. I, I'll tell you what, I, uh, I'm not as confident in number one, but I bet I can name the top two. Ooh. And, and I, I would say, I've lived, on, I've lived on military bases in both of them. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, I'll take the... Uh, I'll take the old horse racing Quinella thing where you, I'll guess I'll guess the first two past the post. You don't have to put them in order for a Quinella. And I'll say I, I bet one of them is Texas, and I bet one of them is California. We closed a lot of bases in both those states, but I bet they're still. Now, if I were to do the uh, the horse racing exacto where you have to get it right, mm-hmm. I, I will bet my old home state of California probably still has more than anybody else. Florida might be close, Texas is there, but I'll, I'll bet California, and I'll bet Texas is second. How about Ooh, that? Yeah, it is California. Oh, yay! Ding, ding, ding. Very <laughs> impressive. <laughs> yes. There are 32 
total bases throughout the state to include locations for the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and National Guard Reserve bases. 32. Wow. I, I think back in the in the day we had 32 in the greater Los Angeles area. Oh. <laughs> I think the Navy had probably 20. Yeah, that's crazy. That's 32 crazy. in California, that's pretty cool. I, I, could, yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah. i got a lot of room in California. Yeah, yeah. A lot of desert bases, too. We, right. we forget the desert bases in California. Yeah, People yeah. think of Nevada and Utah mm. as being the desert. We have a lot of desert in California, too. Mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. I'm glad. Oh, okay, I feel better now. So. Yeah, no, that was really good. 59 <laughs> bases and Air Force bases and how many did you say? 32 in California? Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, All yes. right. Okay. All right, bring on the next question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at the end of this segment, we always like to ask our guests the same uh, pairing of questions. So the first one is, why is it important that we study political science with an understanding of history? Well, I would say first we should uh, we should study everything with an understanding of history. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's my uh, I, I'm smooching up to the department there. <laughs> All right, we approve. We love you guys. Some of my best friends are historians. That's right. <laughs> uh, I would say certainly from my perspective, from political science, and and not much less from uh, economics. I promise you, to to accurately assess where we are politically, it's critical to to know with significant confidence where we've been. You know, we, we have a, in, in social science, we call it, we, when we evaluate public policy and, and programs, sometimes there are people who subscribe to this model. It's called path dependence. And it literally says where you've been determines where you're going. I follow a lot of that too. So I think it's critical to understand where we were throughout history, but also why we were there at that moment what we were up to and why. And that's what I see is you historians are the ones who absolutely do that. You don't just write up that, oh, and, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Everybody knows that. <laughs> but the big question, you know, what I always teach my students is, well, I'm not interested in you telling me Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. I want to know who he was working for. Ah, do you know? Yeah, yeah. Why was he working for them? And what were they expecting to find? Right. Well, historians put us in position to ask those questions. Mm. We have to understand why was Columbus working for Queen Isabella? What was she doing? What was Spain doing anyway? Blah, blah, blah. So I'm very, very much dependent on on history, historians' work, so I can with with great confidence understand and believe where we've been and what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great answer. I love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> what advice do you have for current and future students of history, political science, and public administration? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I would say that in, in the military, in the military, we, 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 we learn lessons. We, we categorize lessons learned and we try to benchmark good studies stuff. I say that perhaps the major lesson that we learned as a military from our Vietnam experience, and Vietnam was very big in my family. When I was growing up, all the, so many members of my family served there. We learned that, that we have to work together especially as a combined effort in complex environments. Everybody brings something to the fight. we got to leverage our strengths while minimizing each other's weaknesses. At the point of every attack, we have to really maximize that. In the military, we call it joint warfare. Well, in the scholarly realm, the same is very true. Here, I'm going to bring this together again, and it's not forced. It doesn't even take that much effort for me to do so. <laughs> but we all have to be knowledgeable and respectful of the strengths that we bring to the fight and the strengths that our 
compatriots bring to the fight. Yeah. We've got to be vigilant in covering each other's weaknesses and maximizing each other's strengths. It's not, it's not social science as scientists versus historians as nerds. Or whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's not that at all. Or it's not politics versus economics. You know, mm-hmm. we often talk about it's Air Force versus Navy or it's Army <laughs> versus Marines, whatever. Well, we get that. But really, we're all in this together reaching for greater understanding and trying to fix our particular puzzle and all that good stuff. And, you know, and I would say that you know, it, it's all about cooperation with respect. It's all yeah. about asking questions that you expect your compatriot to be an expert on mm. and respecting their expertise. That's how we, we multiply our capabilities through our combined effort. You know, we, we depend a lot in political science on sociologists. We depend a lot on anthropologists. We depend a lot on a whole lot of people that we don't often want to, to credit. Our right. <laughs> and those of us doing quantitative analysis do an awful lot of, of, of calculus, do a lot of math stuff, and, and we're really, really big on, on our statistical efforts. So while we're looking for our fact-finding and our search of truth, we really should invest. We must invest in our combined effort, just like we do in the military. We have to do that academic. If we do that academically, we will be big winners, and everybody will be happy. And we all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a great answer. Yay. Well, thank you so much, Elvis, for being here with us today for our thank yous as we wrap up this morning. Thanks for waking up early and joining us. We had a great time talking with you. And, of course, we want to thank all of the selfless and brave men and women who serve in the U.S. Armed Forces, past and present. They mean a great deal to us, and it's been so cool to get to hear all of your stories and just thank everyone who may be listening that has any tie to the military at all. And, of course, just our general population of military men and women. And let's thank the history department as well and our faculty advisor, Dr. Schultz. Thank you for helping us make this happen. Thank you to the College of Liberal Arts for their support, for our researchers and their excellent questions today, to Weagle for everything that they've done for us, and of course our listeners, because without you we'd have no show. So catch us this Friday at 3 p.m. for Weagle Day. Sophia and I will be joining a couple of colleagues from the Weagle station here to take over the Weagle Day hour from 3 to 4. And with that, we're wrapping up for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday at 7 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.